0: Hello? Hello? It's all around us.
1: Hey everybody. Welcome back. With me is one of my favorite returning co-hosts, Mrs. Stephanie Quick. How are you today?
2: I am okay. How
1: are you, sir? I am good. And uh, one of my favorite things about having you on the show, as my bunny Denny likes to say, is that you do my homework <laughs> for me so I can just sit back. Another thing is that you really find a lot of interesting guests that I normally wouldn't have on here that kind of, for lack of a better term, takes me out of my comfort zone, which is fine. That's, you know, I like doing that. And the other thing is, is because you're putting the show together and you've done all the research and stuff like that, it kind of gives me a chance to just sit back and relax and just not have to um, put as much energy into the interview, which is a fancy way of saying I can be lazy. But the problem is, is that every time we get a guest on the show, I've noticed with every episode, you start sending me theses uh, of show notes to where... It's like I, I I feel like I'm crashing for a midterm exam because I, I, I like you send me term papers full of research shit, which is fine. That's great. It's not a problem. Plus, this has always been the way that you are ever since I've known you. Like when me and you message each other on Facebook, it's not like, hey, what's up? How are you? Oh, I'm good. and I'm not bad. It's like, I'm like, okay sit back grab myself a nice little gla- glass of brandy dim the lights and read your message
2: <laughs> so it's funny that you say that because i had um you know i'll make like a google doc and just you know i'm very uh, kind of comprehensive and free form i'll kind of have like my formal questions hopefully or mm-hmm. some points and then cut and paste a lot of stuff like from um, our guests uh blog or wikipedia entries and stuff and um so this morning at about four fifteen, uh, I live uh, with a small chihuahua, our and we live in an area where there's coyotes and stuff, and we don't have a dog door either. So um, I always walk him out if he has to go potty in the middle of the night. I keep an eye on him; he doesn't get you know munched or anything.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so four thirty, or it's like probably about a quarter after four in the morning. The dog has to go out. Okay, so I'm basically trying to. Wake up as little as possible, so I can go back to sleep mm-hmm. when I get back in. However, we, you know, I'm doing kind of okay, still kind of halfway awake. Come back in. And you sat down in like, front of
1: your computer and went nuts on notes, didn't you?
2: No, it was worse. I printed my notes out uh, the last night and left them out, and my husband Anthony had been reading them. So he's like, looking oh, no. at me, he's like, "She's like, what the hell are you talking about? What's the topology supposed to mean? What's it? <laughs> Something about like a." The the uh, meaning-driven mitochondria looking for uh, optimal outcomes in their future, driving their – Yeah, this sounds exactly uh, like like,
1: something you would do. Yeah,
2: yeah. You are (laughs) are
1: the human equivalent of smoking a joint, (laughs) (laughs) like in human form.
2: So – what does all this mean? It's just like really grilling me, and I was like trying to say. anyway. So it's been kind of a little bit of a trying, but you know, the people tend to the people closest to me would agree with you as to how I am. <laughs> oh, it's okay. It's fine.
1: You know, it's 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 nice because again, I can sit back and not have to worry about as much research and just you know be the person that asks the questions you know i now i now i know how it is when you know with other co-hosts that i've had on the show and stuff it's like all right well we're going to be talking to this person tonight don't worry just sit back and listen and and flow with it you know <laughs> it's okay you know so now I, I get a feeling for what's that like now but um where are you taking us tonight who are we talking to and what's what's the situation where are we going
2: so i 'm super ex- well i 'm always excited about everything but i 'm super duper extra excited today because um, we 're going to be talking to Eric Wargo, the author of Time Loops, Time Loops, and uh, the uh, his blog the Nightshirt and he actually trained as an anthropologist and then he I believe professionally has been working as a science writer um, so he has a very strong uh, scientific academic uh, background. Um, and then I guess the prior, maybe about 10-ish years ago, he started to get very more interested in the paranormal and he became uh, very interested in the role of precognition and uh, premonitions which tend to be uh, a classic Psy event and tend to be related to a lot of other Psy events. They tend to come through in dreams, in art, through the creative uh, side of us. Uh, the And he is very interested in uh, the physics um, behind some of what could be happening here in terms of at the quantum level, level uh, physicists have found retrocausation, which is that future events can come and affect affect us here in the present, at least if you're a quantum particle. Also, experimental psychology has found similar effects where people will have like physiological reactions. um Compared uh, based on uh, future images that are going to be happening to them randomly. (laughs) Um, Things like this. And uh, I really like that he takes a very uh, multidisciplinary approach to things. He's uh, drawing from uh, philosophy, anthropology, uh, like I said, physics, experimental psychology. But then he also is looking at kind of qualitative studies where you have a bunch of reports by people like narrative reports and uh, start to evaluate those, uh, talking to people about what their experience is around these uh, psi events or these precognitive events and seeing what you can find out about that. Um, it's just a uh, really fascinating, uh, super multifaceted guy. A lot of people uh, like talking with him about the kind of uh, the physics uh, that he's been dealing with and then some of the philosophical ideas about what this could say about free will and uh, the nature of the universe. <laughs> things just so, say, you know these a few light questions uh are we going to be I'm taking interested- them into different directions tonight or I you know i hope to i hope to because i uh as people a lot of people know i am super interested in synchronicity mm-hmm. which is basically the meaningful coincidence and i'm very much interested in the meaning aspect of this and the way that meaning is conveyed through symbols um to people you know dreams um Art, uh, just seeing something unusual on the street, and uh, how does that facilitate communication between the unconscious and the conscious? Um, so hopefully we'll be talking about that and the whole kind of uh, emotional aspect of a lot, because a, a lot of paranormal events, uh, for example, deathbed visitations or crisis apparitions, uh, tend to arise from highly emotionally charged events. And he has a lot of, uh, interesting ideas about that. So hopefully we'll be talking about that angle, uh, the angle of people being able to experiment themselves. And, uh, you know, be able to participate in increasing our database through their own uh, private efforts um, and stuff like that. But hopefully we'll get some weird stories because he knows a lot of weird stories, which is one of the the things I really enjoy about him, too. Yeah,
1: I'm interested in his stories. I want to hear the things that he's heard in relation to this. So um, I guess let's just uh, jump into the call and see where Eric takes us. And as always, thank you very much for doing this. I do want to oh, say one you. thing, though. I said it in the last yes. episode at the end of the show, and that is uh-huh. that if people are listening to the show on Podbean and you're actually leaving comments for the show, I'm not able to respond to those. For whatever reason, the app won't let me. But I do see what you guys post on the Podbean app. So I am reading your comments. I know – I I read every comment that everybody posts every episode. So it's not that I'm ignoring you guys. I just don't have a way to respond. So – uh, um, cause I said it last episode at the end of the show, but I don't know if people listen that far, but it's very important for me to get out there that yes, I am seeing what you post. I, I, I appreciate it. And very quickly I'm going to have the show's number back up and stuff like that email so people can correspond and interact with the show. Now, here we go. Let's jump into this and see where we go.
0: understand time it's not what you think it is people assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect but actually from a non-linear non-subjective viewpoint it's more like a big ball of wibbly wobbly timey wimey stuff
1: so this week we are joined by eric wargo eric you have wrote a book called time loops you have a blog called the Nightshirt, and you um you're a very you're a very well educated person you have a phd um you come at this stuff from a very scientific perspective so um give us a you know give us the dime store too, of who you are and i'm very curious as to how does a person with your background and your education dip your toes so far into these topics where most people in your situation tend to run away from them
4: <laughs> yeah um that's a great question i I right. I have a Ph.D. Uh, in anthropology, uh, but I didn't go into academia, and that's the key to your, That's the key to the answer. Really, is that I uh, I have worked as a science writer uh, for the last twenty years, twenty plus years, um, uh, working for various scientific organizations, for the most part. And uh, so I don't. Uh, it gives me a lot of freedom um, to, uh, pursue my own, you know, interests, uh, on, uh, in my own writing, you know, I can, I can kind of, uh, you know, do my writing, uh, day job. And, and I don't, uh, I don't get in trouble for, um, for pursuing paranormal, Interests on the side, and that's something that can't be said for people who are at a university setting,
3: mm-hmm.
4: uh, for the most part. I mean, uh, it's there's all so much stigma, uh, toward uh, toward paranormal topics. Um, if you're a professor, you know, if you're mm-hmm. a, or a lecturer at a university, and it's really only you know, this is why, uh, if you are in academia. Uh, you need to have tenure before you can really feel free to even start to talk about this stuff. But by the time you've reached, you've you've attained tenure, you're usually, you know... You're so much part of the academic <laughs> world that it's still, it's still very difficult. And there, are, so there are very few examples, and there are some very standout examples of uh, their counter or, or their uh, counterexamples to what I'm talking about. Uh, people like uh, Jeff Kreipl at Rice University, or um, uh, and there are a few others. But uh, for the most part, it's very stifling uh, to be in a university setting. Uh, if you have paranormal interests, be they UFOs or ESP or, or whatever. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, for various unrelated reasons, I just didn't go, I didn't pursue the academic path after I finished my PhD in anthropology in 2000. Um, and, you know, various accidents of life uh, led me uh, down this road, uh, including a UFO sighting uh, about 11 years ago. Twelve years ago now, um, and yeah, so that's a big part of your answer—the fact that I'm not in academia.
1: So, do you catch a lot of grief from your from your you know like the your, your people around you and stuff like that for the things that you cover? Because as you said, you cover a lot of things like fight, psychic phenomena, UFO experiences, how all of this stuff relates to consciousness and stuff, and these are topics that in the scientific field they're very much poo-pooed or they're met with extreme skepticism or it kind of calls into, um, it calls into, causes calls into question your credentials and things like that, you know, or do people tend to look at you like you're a quack for investigating this stuff? Or is this just something that you don't talk about? No, people I don't even talk weren't? about
4: it. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, I, everyone has their hobbies and, <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> and
4: <Yeah>. pursuits, <laughs> you know, so it's not even, it doesn't even enter the conversation. <laughs>
1: um, well, that's yeah. cool. That's good. You yeah. know, that's, that's nice. Cause, there's not enough scientific people that you know. I mean, when when you talk about this stuff in regards to this drunk, everybody goes to Jacques Vallée, you know, or something like that, because he's the big he's the big one everybody goes. Well, he's a scientist, blah blah, you know. And the skeptics will tear into it and things like that. But you don't see a lot of people that are out there doing this stuff, or if they are, they're not willing to come on and talk about it, you know, for the most part. So you're kind of a unicorn in the field for the most part. And another thing is you don't come at this from a direction of constant woo-woo or anything like that. You're not trying to... Um, overly hype or overly sensationalize the paranormal or capitalize it on or whatever you just kind of look at the stuff and say well yeah it's this it could be that it could be that and you kind of just throw all of the other shit out the window and just deal with you know what's what's really on the table for the most part and again there's not a lot of people that do that so um, I guess uh, Stephanie since you're the one that's corralling all of this thing and getting all going Uh-oh. where do you want to start here <laughs>
2: Well, I want to say, uh, we were talking uh, in the background a little bit uh, just now, and I was telling uh, both of you that I realized when I was doing this prep for the show, which is really, it's a Google Doc, it's only four pages or five pages, which is not bad for me, you have to admit. (laughs) When we did the one for for Synchronicity, I think I had like a 22-page document. (laughs) Oh my but, God. <laughs> but I realized when I was uh, doing all this research that, uh, Eric, you have, um, you know, you've had this blog, you've had a number of podcast uh, appearances, you have your book, Time Loops. There's a lot of uh, interest in your ideas about retro- or retrocausation, um, precognitive uh, dreams, uh, precognition in various artistic uh, forms, um, writers, your views on remote. Uh, viewing um, the block universe, do we have free will, Uh, what's it like being a quark and getting uh, influenced by the future, all this stuff you have covered extensively in written and audio form. And so um, I would encourage people to just go and just dip into your blog or you have a bunch of podcast uh, appearances on the the, uh, sidebar of your blog and just dip in if they're interested in any of that or they can buy your book, Time Loops, or you have another one coming up. Yeah, um, I've
4: got a I've got a book coming out in a month uh, called Precognitive oh. Precognitive Dreamwork and the Long Self, is the is the book and it's coming out uh, late in March. So that's just a plug for the
3: <laughs> plug no, for the
4: new book, good. which my publisher will be happy for me to to, yes. to slip into the conversation here. Yeah.
2: So that all is there, but I figure why not just like talk about a bunch of weird shit, right? Yeah. So you were telling me about an incident involving you. And uh, some fiction writing and a blender. So I'm wondering if you could tell that story.
4: <laughs> yeah. Well. Um, yeah. Well, you were asking. You know, we uh, in in the lead up to the show, you were asking about precognition and creativity and like personal experiences uh, in that regard. Uh, this is a topic of a book in progress uh, for me. I've I've written now about precognition and dreams. Um, But uh, precognition and the arts is uh, a huge interest of mine and I've got a lot of I think really interesting case studies of that that people don't know about um, uh, that I'm currently trying to find the time to write a book about between, yeah, yeah, between yeah. having two small children and a busy day job <laughs> and a pandemic and everything else. It's kind of been hard in the past year, but slowly but surely I'll, I'll get this book done sooner or later. But, um, uh, but you were, we were talking about some personal experiences uh, along these lines and, 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 and one of them uh, that uh, happened, uh, this is, this was in, I think, 1998, I believe. Oh, wow. Um, well, well, I'll tell you, precognition often spans decades of a person's yes. life. Uh, uh, and I've got lots of dream examples of that. But it's true of creativity as well. And particularly, it's particularly true of of Bad or unfinished (laughs) artworks. Okay. Uh, And what I mean is, you know, your sort of initial inspirations for things, which you may never really follow through on, but you may do, you know, maybe write some fragment or, you know, do a sketch or something like that based on some inspiration. Uh, And often these things go nowhere, especially if you're not a professional artist or whatever, um, or a professional writer. But they very often have really vivid precognitive content.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Okay, and this was—I've had several experiences of this, and some uh, some of which are too personal to relate on a podcast. But yeah. um, but one of them uh, was in 1998. I I had just read. Whitley Strieber's Communion. Okay, and I didn't even know at that point. I didn't know anything really about the UFO phenomenon, or, or I really hadn't read much of anything in the paranormal. Uh, But I I did read this book. The book
1: had always kind of,
4: you know, it had a very interesting cover, and
1: as I say, uh, that book is a big trigger for so many people. Yeah. I remember walking by where I was working at the time. I was working at a store, and I walked by, and it was on the bookshelf. And I just stopped and looked at it, mm-hmm. and I grabbed it. And I would go read yeah. it on my breaks every day until I finished the book and put it back on the shelf, so I didn't steal it out of the store. But so many people, <laughs> when they look yeah. at that book with the alien almond eyes and stuff, yeah. it just it just grabbed everybody.
4: Right. Well, anyway, I I finally got around to reading this book in the late '90s. It was like I think it was nineteen ninety eight, and uh, I did not. I, I think it, I, I it's, I don't know. It it triggered a lot of knee jerk, um, knee jerk reactions. As a as a, you know, scientifically trained person, uh, and someone who didn't know anything about the topic at that point, mm-hmm. I I found it, uh, it I found it funny. Okay, I found it funny. I think I found it threatening.
2: <laughs> it was mocking really. your shadow, but, right?
4: Yeah. But, but, but yeah. my conscious reaction was yes. I want to write, I want to, I was very, first of all, I was very captivated by his writing ability. I mean, he spun this you know really riveting story, but I just couldn't believe the story. Uh, and, and so my, I, I sat down to write a parody of it. Okay. a sort of kind of imitating his voice and imitating, um, Uh, this narrative. And so I sat down and I, I just sort of had this inspiration about a guy who goes through this hypnotic regression, uh, you know, in the aftermath of of a UFO encounter and describes an encounter with a flying blender. Okay. go on. There was, was (laughs) but that's, you know, that was the, the, the basic gist. Um, Okay. Those
2: well,
4: <laughs> fast forward, fast forward. Um, I think exactly twenty years. I had become a paranormal author. Okay, and I had, in fact, had UFO sightings of my own, and uh, become, you know, a, a, you know, an authority on on certain. Paranormal topics like precognition and so forth. And uh, I got invited uh, to a a symposium at Esalen on UFOs. And so there I was at Esalen. I'd completely forgotten about this story that I'd written, you know, 20 years earlier. Um, And among the people there at Esalen were Whitley Streber. And I got to know him over the course of a week, you know, lovely and uh, I, I, by this point, I took his stories very seriously, uh, and you know, I had a conversion of my own <laughs> toward you know the reality of the phenomenon, whatever it is. Um, and uh, I think this was on the third or fourth day of the of the symposium. I was uh, we were all hearing a, uh, a talk by Greg Bishop. Uh, The ufologist. And he uh, ended his talk by saying, and I think he had a PowerPoint slide, too, of this image, Um, but uh, that could be a false memory. But he 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 said that, you know, a UFO could manifest as a blender. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, to, to, okay. to, to add to your story, and, I, I did have a gentleman on the show a year ago that was telling a story about how him and his buddy were driving through town, looked up and saw a giant potato floating overneath t- over the town that they were heading into. And, well, a
4: potato, you know, there are a lot of lot of astronomical objects that look like potatoes. You know, that's mm-hmm. not that's not such a radical thing. But a blender, you know, is there's just something so. You know, so ridiculous about that, but but there, that was such a singular thing for him to say, and I just the the this the skin on, I, you know, mm-hmm. I I just suddenly tingled all over mm-hmm. as he was saying this, and because sitting right behind me, directly behind me, in the seat right behind me was Whitley Strieber, you know. So I'm sitting in a room with who had Whitley started Strieber, it all, yes. who had started this. And Greg Bishops, they're, you know, talking about how UFOs could appear as blenders, you know, and I'm like, I'm just suddenly having this really weird experience. Now, let me tell you, there were a lot of similar weird experiences at this, at this symposium, um, uh, uh, this week at at this particular week at at Esalen and and Jeff Kripel who had invited us all there he actually talks about some of the other weird experiences that occurred and uh, in, in, he he'll be talking about about it in one of his forthcoming books I happen to know but this was like like what the you know I don't know if I can swear yeah on you this can story, swear but, Here, go right ahead okay well, what the fuck you know okay well, so so this is the very end of Greg Bishop's talk. And we all head on over to the cafeteria for lunch, and and one of um, one of Jeff's students um, one, you know, sat down across from me and told me about this dream that he'd had after reading my book Time Loops, and he he this it was just this very strange, uh, it was a very powerful dream, but it was a very simple image, and he couldn't figure out what it is. And the image was exactly another scene from that story that I had written 20 years earlier. And I, I was just like, you know, again, what the fuck? And I told him this, you know, and I, I told him, my God, you're like, you had a, you know, I, I sort of told everyone there at the lunch table about, <laughs> about the time <laughs> loop that I was experiencing, you know, the, yeah. the closure of this time loop that was 20 years in the making um, from a, you know, from this, you know, random kind of ill-conceived story that I'd sat down to write you know, in the, you know, dealing with my <laughs> troubled emotions, I think <laughs> after reading Whitley Strieber's book, you know, um, and that,
2: I love that too. Cause the blender, like you say, that's like a super, I mean, that's a super off the wall in context of UFOs and it's also very precise. Yeah. Right? It's, a, it's not just like precise. a generic just, appliance, right. Yeah. It's a, yeah.
4: Like and I, you know, and I told I told Whitley Strieber this too that evening. He said, "Well, you know, what is the paranormal but a big blender?" Oh my God, <laughs> you know, and it's like, yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know. So that's just that's just you know one personal trivial example. Was but- that
1: your first moment of like? There's a whenever somebody has a paranormal experience that they just cannot explain away. Um, and my, from what's happened to me and I've talked to other people, there is this moment of extreme disconnect to where it's like, all right, something is happening here that I am part of that I cannot li- logically explain away. And it hits you on a really strange level. Was that the first time that you've ever felt like that, that disconnect that moment or anything like that before?
4: Oh no, I hear uh, it's all the time. I mean, ah, uh, I can relate. Good <laughs> sir. <laughs> yeah, and, and, no, it's, I mean, I've been studying, uh, uh, dream precognition for years. By that point, and and uh, so the, the the phenomenon of of dreaming about something and then living through it is very familiar to me, and which doesn't lessen the power of the experience, and in fact, it enhances the power to sort of know what this is. That this is, you know, you know, here's another example of what I call in the new book the long self. Uh, you know we are four-dimensional creatures and our futures in a sense already exist ahead of us and they manifest in our dreams and our in our creative inspirations and in our neurotic symptoms and all kinds of stuff and and when we are able to uh, realize that and then when we have these experiences that most people, typically just sort of write off as, you know, it was a synchronicity or whatever, you know, think more deeply about it when we have these experiences and then realize, Oh my God, I'm, I'm living through what I call what I call a time loop. Um, We can get into what that means. Um, You know, when you have these experiences, it's, it's incredibly powerful and um, profound. Uh, But it's not, but it's not unusual in my life. I mean, I, I, Uh, when you do what I call precognitive dream work, uh, uh, that is to say, pay attention to your dreams, uh, with this in mind, uh, you can have this experience on a weekly basis sometimes, uh, or more often even sometimes. Um, so, so, so I was, I was, I was familiar with that feeling. What's rarer, uh, is, is a time loop that spans two decades and that I, I also have experienced. I mean, like the, in the conclusion of time loops, I talk about a, a dream uh, that was fulfilled uh, 18 years in the future, um, and very profoundly, and that connected to the completion of my book. So it was, you know, very very loopy in all kinds of ways. Um, uh, and you know, this this kind of thing happens if you keep a, a dream diary over the course of years and decades, you will, you'll find this happening.
1: Um, Boy, I could talk but, to you a lot but about this. <laughs> but
4: yeah, but it's, you know, it's, it's not common that you're going to be able to detect these things or be, you know, happen to have a record of a dream that you happen to notice or be, be paying attention when the event, you know, happens, you know, years or decades later, that's the, the, the rarer uh, thing, but it does happen.
1: See, the problem with people when – I tell people – because I used to do this for a while. I was experimenting with um, eating different kinds of food before you went to sleep to see how it would affect your subconscious and so forth. There was a book – I can't remember the guy who wrote it, but it was a book called Get High Now, which was all about <laughs> – um, well, it wasn't what you think it is. It's it's It was all about different ways of altering your perception and your consciousness legally. And apparently, if you eat pizza before you go to sleep, it really messes with your dreams because there's a lot of stuff in pizza that affects you on a subconscious level. Um, So I I was doing this for a while and I started keeping a dream diary because the human body, for whatever reason, most people forget, 90% of the people forget what they dream about rather quickly. Unless you get up, immediately write down what you're dreaming about, you have to program your brain to be able to remember what happens in the subconscious state. And after yes. a certain point, the two kind of merge to where you're actually able to, well, you, I, I, maybe I'm wrong about this. You seem to have done more research than I have, but you're, you get to a point where your brain starts to actually interact with what's going on while you're sleeping. And the main reason I quit doing it is because um, I, I was waking up feeling exhausted because it was like my body was physically sleeping, but my brain wasn't wasn't really doing the same thing. Right. I hope that makes sense. Um so I got to a point where I just stopped doing it. Plus I was, I was having strange dreams. Like I had to wake up out of my sleep, laughing and cackling, just laughing my ass off. Whereas most people wake up from a nightmare. I was waking up laughing, not really quite understanding what I was dreaming up while I was laughing. Um, I would be running in my sleep and my wife just finally got tired. of it. She's like, I don't know what the hell you're doing, but you got to cut this shit out. You're driving me nuts. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. I had a dream where she was falling off the cliff and I reached and grabbed her. Well, I actually reached and grabbed her in her sleep and she was out cold and we both are. And you know, and she jumps. And so eventually I just quit doing it because, um, I was just waking up feeling mentally exhausted. It was like my brain. I couldn't, after a certain point, my brain just wasn't shutting off. I'd sleep for a little bit, then I'd start dreaming. And when you keep a dream diary, much like synchronicity, the more that you pay attention to this stuff, the more aware of everything you become. So, right. mm-hmm. am I am I am I right on this, or am I, or is this an individual experience that most people don't understand, or happen, or understand? Am I am I chopping up the right tree here, or with no?
4: what?
1: What uh, about keeping a dream diary? How your brain oh, doesn't yeah. remember when you're sleeping and stuff. You have to force it to start remembering your dreams.
4: Yeah. Like keeping a dream diary often just acts as a prime uh, for people who aren't used to, re, you know, remembering their dreams or typically don't. i um, just having a, a notebook by the side of your bed acts as a kind of prime or almost like setting an intention uh, mm-hmm. to remember them. And people will start, you know, remembering them uh, much better uh, the moment they start recording them.
2: The other uh, aspect of that, Rojan, is there's something called uh, cross-state amnesia and it's related to state-dependent learning, um, and the idea is that uh, when you are in a particular state of consciousness, say you're in a normal waking consciousness versus dreaming consciousness versus, uh, let's say, being drunk. Those are all three different states of consciousness.
1: Yeah, or when um, my wife's yelling at me and I tune her out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Go ahead, you, Eric. You, you don't, you don't remember, you'll remember things that you learned or things that happened better when you're in the same state, state of consciousness as when they happen when you're trying to remember it. The example that I ran across uh, years ago that I thought was uh, very good um, and very interesting, it shows the practical level of it, uh, airline pl- uh, pilots, right? airplane pilots, um, they can know all the proper procedures to go through when, let's say, the plane is stalling, right, and in free fall or something like that. You can sit there in that classroom with the fluorescent lights and the stale coffee and fill out the multiple choice test and get 100%, right? But these same pilots who know that in that, that particular state of consciousness, right, would fail when you know, it's actually going down up in the air when they really need to access that information. So what they figured was that, you know, when you are in a huge adrenaline dump, right? it completely mm-hmm. alters your state of consciousness so what they do to train a lot of these people now is they actually cut the cockpit off of a plane and they put it on pistons inside a warehouse and you have a projected um, screens of the outside there you're actually in this cockpit they shake it around, they um, put smoke in there and flashes and have recordings of people screaming and subject you to big g-forces so that you get a feeling for what it's like to be in a plane that's going through this type of emergency um, physically and so you can train during that particular physiological state that particular state of consciousness and then you perform uh better because you don't you don't remember between these states unless you go to uh to the trouble of for example meditating that's one of the big uh ideas of meditating right is that you develop that core (laughs) Um, or a neutral observer that can kind of go between the various states of consciousness. Mm Yes, No, that's, that's actually an excellent um, example as well. It's a real different situation when you're just kind of, you know, looking at a book, um, you know, sitting there safe and sound versus when people are shooting at you and and screaming at you and all that type of stuff. Well, it kind
4: of relates to uh, some of the mnemonic principles that, Uh, actually play a a huge role in precognition and that I talk about in the new book. Um, The, you know, even, you know, even leaving aside things like learning a a high stakes skill, like piloting a plane, I mean, just learning facts in a lecture, uh, Mm -hmm. for instance, uh, you you are benefited, you know, counterintuitively, you will do better if you pay attention to sort of the random, uh, cues you know like the spatial setting or the the, the, the the smells or the sounds outside the window all the sort of ambiance uh, and and random little details of uh, like the what the professor was wearing and things like that um, those things will actually help you remember that stuff later and and little you know spatial cues for instance will then help you recall it you know uh, at a later date so it's kind of um, an extension of of what you're talking about, um, uh, but these things uh, also help account for why certain for for some of the cues that may trigger paranormal experiences. Because my argument is that they, you know, these are actually just your memory going in reverse. You're remembering your future, uh, mm-hmm. and so if you you know find yourself in a spatial in in a like a, a, a location um, that you later read something about well if you're the kind of person that is prone to hallucination or or prone to having visions or whatever waking kind of dreams you may have a waking what i call a primary a waking primary of um, Mm -hmm. something you learn about that you know location later you know in your future Uh, Mm -hmm. so-called time slip experiences uh, mm-hmm. Are readily explained uh, in this way, um, so it kind of goes along
2: with what you're talking about of the of the state dependent uh, learning. And you're also uh, putting me in mind of uh, the the memory palace art of memory.
4: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's yeah. A, I talk a lot about the art of memory in the new book because uh, oh, <laughs>
2: because
4: precognition is really it's an aspect of memory and uh, and when you understand uh, that that. Dreams are essentially the art of memory operating while we sleep, um, and but they're not just encoding recent experiences; they're encoding future experiences as well. Uh, when you sort of so when you understand the art of memory, it really gives a major lever to understanding dream symbolism and how to uh, catch examples of precognition in your dreams, um, because most precognitive content, just like most mnemonic content, is symbolically distorted. Uh, and uh, understanding the art of memory is a, a, a huge, huge advantage.
1: So I got to uh, ask, why why does the subconscious state draw so much of the precognitive you know, um, happenings? What, what about it, as opposed to being in the conscious state, is is it because your brain is more free flowing when you're in a subconscious state, or you're more open to receive the stuff? And the other question, because it's a two part question, this is going to go in a different direction. So answer it <laughs> however you want. How did you come to find this information? How? What kind of steps of research did you find to come to these conclusions?
4: Um, well, to answer your your first question, you can sort of think of of waking consciousness as kind of this. Um, well okay aldous huxley talked about consciousness as a reducing valve the brain is a reducing valve um he was talking about you know the brain kind of reducing uh some sort of larger you know transcendental consciousness uh i i think of the present moment as a kind of or or I think of the reducing valve as reducing our, what I, again, what I call the long self. The point is the brain is a tesseract. It's a, it's a, it's an information processor that's, that that exists in four dimensions and it, it contains information about our future as much as information about our past. Um, But we would be completely incapacitated in waking life. If we were dealing with information across the, the span of our life, you know, how would we act? You know, how would we, respond you know in a in a, in the moment you know you have to think of you have to remember that the brain fundamentally is a control system for the body and it doesn't help uh that you know body you know survive and and do the things it needs to do if it's dealing with information from uh from the future <laughs> you know uh you you need to reduce you need to reduce things to you know the present moment which you know, cognitive psychologists will tell you the present moment is kind of a fiction. We don't, you know, we, we may kind of imagine it as kind of a cursor, uh, you know, in, if in, you know, if we imagine our lives as a, as like a ribbon and a film editing program, you know, the uh, the present moment is kind of a, you know, a cursor moving from left to right. But it's, it's a lot thicker, in fact, than that cursor, even in waking consciousness. Um, they talk about the, um uh, oh, there's a term, and I'm, I'm blanking on what the term is, but it's sort of uh, the the present moment is really kind of a nebulous, rough. You know, it's a few seconds, <laughs> kind of uh, kind of bundled into into what feels like an instant. Um,
1: yeah, because we're existing but, in the here and now,
4: <laughs> right? But uh, but you know, in but in altered states of all kinds, you know, dreaming uh, trance states, you know, drug states, uh, that, that window can really expand. Um, and, uh, and we can get, uh, information about our future and our past and all kind of mingles together. Um, uh, and so I think that answers your first question, but how did I get how did I start studying this? I think was your second question.
1: Well, how, what, um, what informa- how did you go about studying? St- what information did you go about studying to come up with conclusions that you've came to? Like, did, have you sat down and, and done dream research with people? Have you done this yourself? Um, you know, did, did you have tough subjects for this kind of thing? Um, and I guess we could even go a step further. Have you had people in altered states of consciousness try to do this as well?
4: No, it's nothing I've ever done experimentally. Um, it's uh, you know, so my I'm I'm basing it on my own few decades as a as a uh, you know studying my own dreams, studying lots of other people's dreams in the literature, um, uh, and studying the you know findings from parapsychology, uh, studying you know, the emerging field of quantum biology
3: mm-hmm.
4: uh, and the quantum physics that may make retrocausation a real thing, which in turn will re- revolutionize our understanding of biology. Um, uh, so I, I'm drawing together a lot of different uh, fields of emerging research along with a long but small or quiet tradition uh in studying precognitive dreams uh my my predecessor i guess or my not my predecessor my my guiding light in the study of dream precognition uh is someone who wrote almost a century ago uh his name was j.w dunn he was a an english aviator uh, i'm sorry a, an english aviation uh, engineer uh who in his spare time, uh, studied his own dreams and realized that he was dreaming about things that he would encounter in the next few days, Uh, very often, often things he would read in the newspaper. And he approached the subject sort of the way an engineer would, uh, very kind of scientifically. I mean, he didn't, you know, have a, a large pool of test subjects or anything like that. But he was rigorous in his analysis of his own dreams and how they related to subsequent events uh, when they related to subsequent events. And he was able to uh, make some really important and counterintuitive conclusions about how dream precognition must work. Now, he didn't understand. He didn't have any understanding at that point of the brain uh, uh, or you know, he, he was, you know, he was writing about this uh, in the 1920s, uh, but he uh, he was able to figure out, first of all, that precognition is not seeing events in some generalized future. OK, it was about getting a preview of a future experience, often a future learning experience. So, for instance, his famous, his most famous example was he, he was with his regiment fighting in the Boer War, uh, I think around 1900 or 1901 uh, in South Africa. And he has a dream about he's on a French volcanic island and it's about to explode. It's about to erupt. Uh, and, he go, and he runs around trying to alert the authorities that 4000 people are about to die and no one will listen to him. Okay, so he wakes up, and then I think in a couple days later, uh, a batch of mail arrives in the camp, and it includes the latest issue of, of, I forget what the newspaper was, but the front page headline of the newspaper was uh, Montpellier and Martinique uh, erupted, killing 40,000 people. And he realized, well, he had precognized this, but he was also able to figure out that he was not precognizing the event per se, you know, he wasn't getting some sort of psychic signal of uh, an eruption on a French island, uh, you know, across the ocean, he was getting a preview of his own emotions and his own reactions, reading that newspaper story. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is a distinction um, that is all too seldom made even now uh, among people who write about ESP and psychic phenomena. uh, It's, it's crucial though, and when you realize that precognition is about your own future experiences, um, it uh, it's incredibly powerful, and uh, uh, and it's and it and it makes a, a much more powerful theory, really than than. The alternative that somehow we just sort of nebulously pick up on things in the future because that's never really the case when you study precognition um, In you know recorded instances, you know I've studied a lot of famous people's precognitive dreams for instance or precognitive dreams in the literature uh, and my own invariably This model fits the data that people are precognizing their own future reactions uh, to learning, learning things and their own future, uh, just future experiences, future learning experiences, things that are salient in one way or another for them personally. Uh, and it erratically changes the picture of psychic phenomena and, you know, so-called ESP or psi uh, when you have that perspective. So I'm kind of trying to advance this, this alternative theory, this alternative model of psychic phenomena
1: so let me ask you this question then i'm going to take a slight right turn here and if you don't have an answer for it that's fine i'm not going to hold you to anything so this brings me to the question of what about people who have past life dreams of some sort or another do you have a theory on past life regressions or past life experiences when people are in a subconscious state
4: yeah and i've written about this on my blog um,
2: uh, there are... it's related to the time slip thing that you
4: were talking about, right? Exactly, it's the same model you know, people yep. um, will have uh, you know, uh, go into a, 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 a regret, you know, hypnotic regression, whatever um, have very vivid experiences that, that may, may feel like a past life or whatever but the point is, how do you know that that's a past life until you you somehow confirm it, okay well Often, what happens is that this powerful experience in hypnosis prods the person to then do research, right, and to try and verify it. And in the process of verifying it, they're learning precisely the things uh, that they think they they directly experience, they directly remembered from a past life. Um, but arguably, they could be simply in that trance state, having a precognitive. Uh, experience of that future learning experience, so it becomes, you know, people are precognizing their future discoveries, especially in the course of an exciting, uh, very personally powerful, spiritually powerful detective story. And I've got, you know, various examples of this on my blog um, uh, that that fit the precognitive model much better than a than a simple uh, past life model. There are often what I call tracers that where you can make a distinction uh, or where you can really tell where the information is coming from uh, particularly when, like the
2: blenders, right?
4: <laughs> yeah. Well, like when something, uh, and I'm not talking about just things that are very specific, but, but things that are often may be erroneous. Yes, um,
3: exactly. Yes. Uh,
4: things that are errors, uh, things that are reported inaccurately, people will, will those inaccuracies will be part of be part of their their experience. Ex, experience which shows that what their what that experience was was precognizing that learning experience that yeah. possibly inaccurately reported learning experience afterwards so it there really is what i call misrecognized precognition and this is uh this applies to many many um Many different kinds of 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 paranormal experience now that, that, that is just not to say that, that there aren't such things as, as past lives or reincarnation I mean there's no way you can disprove uh, a belief in re- reincarnation but but when I have looked closely at, at some well sort of documented cases of people who've undergone past life regressions, children who've remembered past lives the the precognitive explanation is is far more compelling ultimately because of these tracers um uh i mean we could we could go we could talk at length on this if you wanted to but uh,
3: well,
2: you've have, you had have some good examples out there of uh especially of a couple of time slips where uh someone uh there's a famous one this woman thought that she had seen like a battle going in a particular yeah. Uh, area over this field uh, mm-hmm. but it turned and then there was like some uh, like archaeology sure. that, that kind of showed that it was that way but then when they did the, uh, the uh, more uh, in-depth and thorough study later it turned out that was mistaken information so sure. she was yeah, yeah. I so, can tell and that story uh, if
4: you'd like I mean it's, a, that's a <laughs> great, it's one of my favorite examples of this um, uh, this but, is uh, what
2: I want to ask you though and right now since I have you and I've heard you tell that story before and I'm going to be a little okay. selfish here okay have you seen any type of experimental design where we could get out of this? Because it's a it's a hard, logical proposition. And I, one of the things that I just love to death about your work is that you are, are looking at this problem, and it's a hard problem, and you're saying, I'm not going to wait until they come up with a linear accelerator or whatever that can do the experiment, which is like, I think a lot of people, especially about the uh, UFOs kind of are looking at, well, we're going to wait for the government to tell us or we're going to get this uh, technological fix to our questions. You're saying, okay, what can we do with what we have right now? And a lot of it is, you know, just experimental design and coming up with questions. And I love that you've done... um, you know, this analysis of existing data, set, generating your own data, right? Recording your own dreams. And yes. then, you know, what happens in your life? Um, you're encouraging other people to, to do this as well. Um, and then you're looking at that data set and coming up with hypotheses, trying to find more examples to prove or disprove, uh, chasing this down. And I just love that about your work, that you're not waiting for some, uh, let's say, future, huh? <laughs> that's out there where the technology is going to start to say okay what can we do now to try and get into learning what we can about it so i'm wondering where you stand on the whole issue of are we looking how how can we get out of um or create an experiment where let's say we're trying to have people have uh precognitive dreams that uh, let's say get out of their own um feedback loop or something like that what's your kind of current thinking on that
4: Well, it's very hard to study this stuff experimentally. I mean, this is part of the reason I'm not waiting for, um, uh, you know, experimental data is how how would you it's it's hard enough um, to study dreams. Whatever I mean, whatever your your guiding theory about how dreams work, for instance, it's mm-hmm. it's 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 very hard to study dream content. This is if you look at the history of the study of dreams, um, you know the great pioneer was Freud, but he was not he was not putting people in the laboratory and trying to get uh, a large sample of of dreamers. I mean, what would that even tell him? Uh, Mm -hmm. What would that even tell the experimenter? Um, The most sort of recent kind of, if there's a consensus in dream science over the last, you know, 20 years, it's that dreams have to do with the consolidation and formation of memories, okay? Uh, Mm -hmm. That that they're very, they're somehow uh, involved in learning, in learning new information and in making new memories, or at least solidifying memories that we've made. Mm -hmm. Um, And with that in mind, Sleep scientists will put, you know, dreamers in a, you know, they will subject dreamers to some sort of experience like playing a video game or something like that. And then they will have them sleep in a sleep lab and then they'll wake them up and record their dreams and so forth. Uh, And, you know, and they'll get a certain amount of evidence, you know, that yes, what they were doing before they went to sleep somehow appears in their dreams. So, you know, they can kind of tell that, that, you know, dreams are involved in recent experience and they're involved in learning. But beyond that, dreams are so personal and they draw on such personal such a personal stock of symbols and Mm -hmm. and so that even if you you know even if dreams are about memory which i think they are um and you give you know a, a hundred College undergraduates, you know, the same experiences over the course of a week, say, you know, uh, and how would you even do that? But I mean,
2: mm-hmm. you know,
4: give them the same experiences; they're all going to dream differently about those experiences at night. So that that there precludes getting very much useful data about something like dreams. Uh, in an experimental setting i think this is a problem with all of psychology that that psychology is dealing with meaning okay it's 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 dealing with meaning uh meaningful behaviors and experiences and meaning just is not cannot be captured very well in sciences well
1: it's also subjective to each person too you know each person yeah how how they interpret what they're seeing that's okay that's this is why we. yeah
4: (laughs) that's what i mean that's what I'm talking about. That's what I mean. And, that, and, well, this, and, that's, and that's why we have the humanities, right? Yes. And that's why Freud was such a powerful figure, was that he, he bridged the sciences, the, the, the sort of then nascent sciences of, of the brain uh, and psychology with the humanities, okay? And he was sort of standing astride these two large domains, and he was drawing on bo- on methods from both of them. And he created a very powerful theory that way. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to, you know say, well, there's some things we can learn from the science, okay? There's some things we can learn from science, but but there's a certain point at which you have to draw on what's, you know d- dismissively called anecdote, okay? Mm-hmm. Because every dreamer is an n of one. and any every dream is an n of one. But there are patterns that emerge when you start collecting lots of uh, lots of dreams, lots of precognitive dreams. Uh, there are patterns and principles that can be extracted from that, and that's what the new book, my new book, is arguing. And I, I lay out something like twenty seven principles uh, mm-hmm. uh, underlying uh, precognitive dreaming and and uh, and how precognitive dreams are formed.
2: Uh, I have to say that the uh, I know some Discordians, and they're going to be very sad that there's uh, twenty seven instead of twenty three principles. I think. <laughs> oh. <laughs>
4: I could actually have gone <laughs> a lot farther. I mean, I, I I didn't want to make it any kind of even number because they're uh, my the book is an invitation to citizen science, which is what you were sort of talking about, and uh, and and I'm uh, there's this is a this is a you know uh, I'm inviting people to 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 enter the conversation. Uh, and to sort of help me, you know, map out this territory. And uh, so there's lots, of, lots more principles to be added, uh, undoubtedly. And, and, and I'm not claiming that my principles are, the, the ones I've come up with are inviol- inviolable or, or, or set in stone, uh, but they, they, you know, seem to be true based on, on my experience uh, thus far and my reading thus far and my work with other precognitive dreamers. Uh, who I talk about in the book? Yeah.
2: So, um, first of all, I think Rojan would just like a tiny uh, little explanation of retrocausality uh, for people that um, have been listening for what forty nine minutes or so now and are
1: lost. <laughs> yeah, because you've brought up <laughs> retrocausality a few times. I was wondering if you could explain that in layman terms for for people who don't know what that is, or explain it to me as though I'm five.
4: <laughs> yeah, it's it it it's. Most simply, it's the idea that an effect can precede its cause, okay? That something or that something in the future could somehow cause or influence something in the present, or something in the present could cause or influence something in the past, all right? Uh, We usually think of causation as going only in a single direction, all right, from past towards the future, right? Um, But... Physics suggests that that isn't true. That we 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 perceive things that way, but that it may be that that there are causes that can work in reverse, and that that this may be operative on the smallest scales in nature. That is to say, the quantum scale, um, where causes may go in both directions, or causal direction may be ill-defined at, the, at the, 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 the tiniest scale of particles interacting, okay? Um, they. What's fascinating is that uh, in the last 10 years or so, they've, well, 20 years, they've started devising experiments that can show this. Um, and the emerging field of quantum computing is showing this. Uh, almost every month you read an article of, about quantum computing Uh, Researchers showing that cause that the order, uh, 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 the causal order can be reversed uh, in a quantum computing operation in a in a calculation a quantum computer, uh, you know you could put it this way the output could precede the input. You're starting
1: to sound like Doctor Who. (laughs) that's that's what it reminds me of. So basically what you're implying is it sounds like that when something happens, that it not only ripples forward in time, but it can ripple backwards in time. time. Exactly. And, and special
4: circumstances, uh, such as the guts of a quantum computer can scale up that, that, that retrocausal effect. Um, and guess what? Is being considered to be a quantum computer. Well, living systems. Uh, the, the field of quantum biology uh, is is exploding right now, and and we're realizing that there are certain circumstances uh, in living systems um, that behave as quantum computers. Uh, photosynthesis was the first one identified um, that scales up some of these spooky quantum effects, um, but of course. You know, everyone's holy grail for quantum biology is the brain. You know, uh, quantum neuroscience is going to be a, you know, huge growth field in the next, you know, 20 years, probably. And uh, and there's a big, there's a gold rusher on to, to find, you know, the roots of consciousness in quantum processes in the brain. that's going to be
1: tricky (laughs) because we can't even define what consciousness is now,
4: you know, exactly. I'm not Mm -hmm. interested in consciousness, but I think, uh, a nice side effect of this search is that they're going to find, uh, these, these quantum computing properties, uh, of, of molecular systems inside neurons, uh, that would explain the kinds of things that I'm describing, uh, in terms of precognition. Um, so, Uh, So, you know, retrocausation is, is, is causes going in reverse, basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is an emerging, it's a topic of increased interest, uh, both for physicists, um, and, you know, anyone who looks to physics, physics as a possible harbinger of what we may discover about human life.
2: Yeah, I'm not surprised that uh, you trained as an anthropologist because I was able to take anthropology in college when I was a young woman, and it's 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 very multidisciplinary, right? You have uh, physical anthropology, you have cultural anthropology, you have linguis- li- linguistics, linguistics, and <laughs> linguistics, linguistics. <laughs> so a whole new field, um, because it's saying to understand human beings the human experience what the heck we're up to you need to look at this from various angles right it's it's similar to um in a way uh let's say uh detectives i, I would love jacques belay's phrase where are the ufo detectives because first of all he's talking about we may, we're probably dealing with something that is intelligently uh, motivated But the other aspect is that detectives don't just talk to witnesses. They don't just rely on DNA. They don't just construct timelines. They don't, you use all these various forms of evidence, whatever you're able to come across, to uh, knit together a theory of, eh, in detectives, the crime you know instead of just yeah. relying on one thing and so i th- and also it's dependent upon well given our circumstances what do we have access to i'm sure you know as an archaeologist much better than i um a lot of what you're looking at or what they were teaching us in archaeology is the fact that um you just lose huge huge amounts of information at every stage of any process of preservation of an archaeological site right yeah. um so you're always seeing well what is it? That's one one of the reasons why there's so many different methods of, of uh, dating an archaeological site to to cross reference. But also, you just don't, a lot of them rely on very special circumstances.
4: Um, yeah. Well, I mean, anthropology is uh, a lot like psych. You know, like I mentioned, psychology. Uh, mm-hmm. If you think you can understand human behavior purely through the tools of science, you're woefully mistaken. I think.
2: Um, yeah.
4: And and psychology, like anthropology, has been riven for. For, since almost at the beginning between two kind of camps that are real, fiercely warring uh the scientists and the sort of human you know the humanists, yeah. you know and and these these uh sides are constantly um, butting heads and often just parting ways and wanting to talk to each other so in psychology you have you know a, a scientific uh the, the sort of scientific psychology um, that does experiments and you have the clinicians and they often you know, there's very little overlap, really. I mean, they're, uh, they often don't even speak to each other. You know, you're the therapists and, and 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 so on, you know, often don't aren't really interested in what what experimentalists are doing, and vice versa. Well, the same is true of anthropology. It it mm-hmm. has always there's been this these two warring camps between the kind of materialists who are kind of interested in sort of measurable, um, you know, social forces and the uh those who are more interested in interpretation who who take more inspiration from you know the you know psychoanalysts and and so on uh so yeah so any yeah and again it's because you're dealing with human beings and we're we're both you know we're physical (laughs) biological creatures who you yes i mean there's a lot you know a lot you can say scientifically about us but but we're 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 also meaning makers and uh you can't meaning can't be captured in
2: science's nets exactly and i think that um one of the things i really like about your work in particular is that you really um try and kind of uh look at it from both because this is so frustrating when you talk about like um the the, the two types of psychologists warring with each other because the fact is that um to really help people you need to look at, at both angles right I mean, you know, like uh, people that get um, diagnosed with a severe disease, of course, you want to have uh, the medicines, the tests, all that physical stuff um, that can help you, but you need to have information about what to expect with your disease, how to use those medicines, if you have any uh, things you should be doing with your lifestyle, and then you need, you know, to have like supportive systems around for like the emotional haywire and then even just practical matters, and all, all that stuff is like kind of a lot more touchy-feely, so um and I think I, I'm liking to see this in some of uh, people, especially like about the past maybe five years in the uh, para-weird uh, er- arena, is that people are starting to get a little bit more of that holistic approach. I mean, of course, uh, Valais has uh, been at that for a number of years. as a classic trilogy, contact trilogy, um, mm-hmm. addresses exactly this whole angle. You have like the mythical dimension, psychological, uh, very... Uh, the, traces the social dimension all that stuff uh so i liked
4: um, i liked what you said uh though you know likening it to a detective because you know actually one of the uh it's in somewhere i don't know if it's in his contact trilogy or if it's in messengers of deception but he you know he has a conversation with a military person who says you know you can't treat this as science you have to treat it as an intelligence problem you know yes and exactly. uh, you know, and that's it, it, it's exactly what you're you're saying. I mean that it's, uh, uh, and I, I, yeah, I like that perspective of of viewing it as a detective. And you know, F- Freud, who you know, I, I sort of bring a kind of a Freudian sensibility to uh, studying mm-hmm. precognition. You know, he has always been compared to like a Sherlock Holmes, you know, kind of figure mm-hmm. who's, who's, uh, you know, really drawing on all all kinds of evidence uh, to come up with a story. Uh, I, yeah, I like that. That's um, That's good.
2: Mm-hmm. Cool. So I wanted to uh, talk again and more about symbols and meaning. Um, because it's core to all of this. The only reason that we know that things can be uh, referring to things in the future is because we recognize that these symbols are conveying meaning that maps onto these future events or experiences that we have. Um And like you're saying, a lot of this stuff can be very personal and idiosyncratic, but then there's also a lot of shared meanings, too. Um, I wanted to bring up something, because I was actually talking with, uh, I was pestering many moons ago, David McCaff, Human Encyclopedia, as we were discussing earlier. Mm -hmm. And so I was talking about, you know, meaning and symbols and stuff, and he used the phrase topology of symbols, and I just loved it, and I remember it, and I asked him recently, actually just yesterday i said did you say that because i remember you saying it but then when i try and google it i can't find it anywhere he's like i said it. he's like but i don't remember what i meant <laughs> so, <laughs> so but i was like well what you meant was actually xyz and this basically a topology is a form of mathematics that i have no understanding of but it has to do with these specialized objects for example like a mobius strip right. and you uh, went, let me read from the Wikipedia here it says the properties of a geometric object that are preserved under continuous deformation, such as stretching, twisting, crumpling and bending, but not tearing or gluing. So putting that as a metaphor for meaning. Right. Um, that would be something like, OK, let's say you're in the United States, you come up to a, an intersection, you're driving a car at the intersection you're heading to, you can see, let's say, a glowing red light or you see a uh, three-dimensional stop sign, it has the word stop on it, or you see a uniformed traffic officer standing there and they're holding uh, their arm out with their palm facing you. Now, each of those things means that you need to stop the car. But it's through very different symbols, uh, very different media, Uh, one's a gesture, another involves electricity, another involves language, written language. But yet the meaning, there's this meaning behind it all that remains consistent. So essentially, Eric, what's up with this?
4: Well, you're gonna love my new book, Steph. Because I, bet. <laughs> I have I have a whole I have a whole chapter. I don't use the term topology, but I have a whole chapter on why dream symbolism obeys laws dictated by wormholes. Mm-hmm. OK, that 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 future information that refluxes into our present, you know, for instance, in a dream mm-hmm. has to be distorted uh, because of the laws that preserve self-consistency in a, in a universe that includes time traveling objects. OK, mm-hmm. and these these laws were sort of deduced by physicists um, in the 1980s. Uh, when they were trying to figure out the laws of wormholes, okay.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: But, uh, what I'm doing in the, in, in the new book is showing that these laws actually map perfectly onto the principles of dream distortion, or, uh, principles whereby life experiences are distorted in dreams, uh, that were mapped out by Freud a century ago, um, mm-hmm. or the a century and two decades ago. Um, and uh, so, so, you know, we, we have, uh, and, and in a way you can look at one sort of simplistic way of looking at it is that, is that future information has to be distorted um, in order to preserve, in order to prevent, you know, so-called grandfather paradoxes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have a dream about an avoidable, event in your future that you would want to avoid. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you're not going to dream about it clearly, mm-hmm. right? Uh, yeah. It's going to be distorted. Um, so you're not going to realize what you were dreaming about until the event comes to pass. So if this is, this is involved in, you know, free will and, and uh, the, you know, the fact that we, are constantly trying to evade uh, information about our future. Uh, you know, people think they want to be precognitive, but in fact we fight tooth and nail against prophecies. Uh, and this is, what, this is what Oedipus, the Oedipus story that was so captivating to exactly. Freud is really about. It's really, mm-hmm. it's not about a guy sleeping with his mother. I mean, that's that's incidental. It's about a guy avoiding a prophecy and in the process of avoiding it, fulfilling it. And that yes. logic is exactly the logic of the unconscious. It's like a Möbius, and it's uh, and it you know by avoiding something we come we by avoiding things in our future we actually come to those things. But those things may not be things that we really wanted to avoid. We just didn't understand them. You know, this is a more common you know uh, logic in in dream precognition that mm-hmm. that we think uh, we're avoiding things or we think we're evading. Uh, outcomes that we don't really understand um, until we we then have the experience that we were precognizing. And then it's like this huge duh moment where all that all that symbolism like oh my god that's what that meant and it wasn't and, and 9 times out of 10 it's not some bad cult catastrophe like we thought you know we may have a you know nightmares are often very precognitive but the event that the that the nightmare is precognizing is actually something really good or something really interesting but but the 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 past self or the self that's dreaming about that future event can't understand it and misconstrues okay and misconstrues in precisely the right way that you wind up having that experience later so okay, this so,
2: oh, go ahead i no, I, I have a couple of examples but i think i'm going to try and go with one this is a little bit this is kind of a recent thing and uh, everything ended up okay um but it was pretty stressful and it was weird because it was not just a dream thing it, it it ended up kind of, the. I think the first indication was a, a nightmare, but then it ended up having a lot of, like, uh, other people uh, in, uh, let's say, uh, celestial events. <laughs> anyway, let me just shut up and try and tell you. Okay, so you're talking nightmares and precognizing. So it was probably about three or four months ago. Actually, I wrote about it in uh, Facebook and a couple other places on social media because was I, I got very uh, offended. So, my husband and I uh, sleep in the same bed amazingly, and he has a a lot of uh, nightmares and talks in his sleep a lot and stuff. Um, He's actually very articulate. So, he, uh, about three or four months ago, I had woken up because he was having a disturbed sleep and he's moaning and shouting, and he woke up like shouting and flailing. And I was like, oh my gosh. So, I, I kind of woke him up and calmed him down. And I said, well, what were you dreaming? And he said, "I dreamed that I was in the bathroom, on the toilet, and you came in the door." I'm like, what? "So this is your nightmare?" Is like having me, having me, I'm like the, the monster bursting in on you. Steph, <laughs> you're a very
1: <laughs> odd person. <laughs> <laughs> you live a very odd life.
2: Uh- <laughs> I was like, "What?" I was, I was I was pretty miffed, but I was trying to not be a bitch about it anyway. So. Okay, within a month, he is very worried because he is uh, has blood in his urine, which is not a good thing. Um, so he was concerned. Luckily, he wanted to go see the doctor right away. They confirmed it was blood. I was thinking he's had kidney stones really badly, badly in the past. So that was my best bet about what it was. But he was on the internet a lot and was very worried yeah. about bladder cancer. <laughs>
3: right.
2: Um, so uh we're going through this thing i'm trying to keep him down he's hydrating a lot and everything um the other thing he had some kind of pain like in a, you know in one of his kidneys but it wasn't really when he's had stones before it's been like ended up in the emergency room and they give him the morphine drip kind of stones mm-hmm. but this was a very mild pain um so the first thing that happened was weird was um i have uh a couple of uh, online friends uh matt hopewell ap strange on twitter and then also um uh uh chris who uh runs a podcast called the eternal void uh but with jazz and they were uh, talking on the eternal void and um matt ended up telling this story of a, like a weird kind of uh strange synchronicity type of thing at a truck stop and it involved um he had pulled over to take a leak, and then this other lady had pulled over, and she actually happened to mention that she had come there uh, to use the restroom, too. But it, he ended up being able to uh, help her out with an attempted robbery or hit-and-run or something with her car. So he said it was kind of like a bladder synchronicity, so <laughs> which was funny. But then, you know, so I, I let them know that this is, and they had actually mentioned me earlier in the show and in my interest in synchronicity, so I, I, I let them know. I was like, you guys are on point with your telepathy or whatever because I'm worried about bladder stuff. Anyway, as it turned out, uh, my husband got worked up everything, and his biggest problem is he's passing some kidney stones. He actually passed one today. Um, but the weird thing was I had a day. For some reason, I was thinking of... Um, That XTC song, uh, Then She Appeared, about Aphrodite, and uh, I don't know I was thinking. My husband's a big XTC fan. Mm. So I was listening to that song, and I was walking on my normal route here and i love it here in the napa valley I, I walk on these trails and it's dark enough here where you can see the milky way and have seen over the years that i've lived here which is several years a number of you know at least half a dozen like really strong um shooting stars meteors really nice um which i enjoy a lot so i was walking up the trail and i happened to see a really nice shooting star it was when venus was next to the near the moon and uh, it, it came, like, right between them, and it ended up showing red, white, and blue, which is interesting because um, there's a line in that, uh, in that song. It that says, brittle, sh- brittle shooting star, and then a uh, tricolor with Phrygian Cap, right? And, the, and the, the French tricolor, of course, is red, white, and blue. It's like, gosh, anyway. So that night, my husband passed a stone which was before he had got diagnosed this and it, it made him feel a lot better to actually see it. They've mm-hmm. been very small ones. Um, and I was, and I thought that's weird because it's, it's this little bit of grit that makes a big, like a lot of fuss when it mm-hmm. is leaving, right? Getting to the end of his journey. Mm-hmm. And then uh, about a couple of weeks after that, I actually saw three shooting stars coming out of the Pleiades when I was out walking and he ended up passing uh, stones that night as well. So it's kind of like a weird thing that started, like, with a nightmare of him knowing that there was, like, a problem with, like, elimination. <laughs> and then having these other people. This
1: isn't strange at all. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then, um, you know, it ended up with the, these two guys bringing up the bladders sink and then me seeing shooting stars on the night when he was passing stones. <laughs> so it's like this weird kind of like a bleed over and then like you say like the symbolism um is kind of like strange too especially that i was th- thinking of that uh, song everything so i don't know what to say about all this um, oh you're 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 precognitive
4: step i mean like the 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 thinking of the song what what was what what prompted you to think of that song I and mean, I'm, I'm i lost the thread of the story but
2: the, I was I was just happened to be thinking of it. Oh, to be was, thinking of it. Well that's that's was that's very typical. The, yeah, look, someone look. was talking about the something and I was like, Oh, it's that's an Aphrodite thing and it made me think of that song. Right. It's about her That's that's that is yeah. the that that is very,
4: very common and those little random, you know. Mm-hmm avenues of thought of waking thought and Mm -hmm. earworms thing you know lines of songs that get Mm -hmm. stuck in your head these are very they're commonly precognitive this is why, again i come back to freud all the time because everything freud identified as the unconscious okay dreams uh but his second book after his dream book was the the psychopathology of everyday life which is about which is about, you know, these random, you know, trains of thought that mm-hmm. turn out to be meaningful. The, you know, see syn- what we would now call synchronicities. Um, mm-hmm. What, what uh, you know, uh, things that get stuck in your head, uh, little symptomatic things, slips of the tongue, things like that. Uh, these are all manifestations of precognition um, very often. And when people write them down, and pay attention to them. Or if you're a meditator, you know meditation helps train you to kind of notice your trains of thought. Exactly. Um, and and that's why it's so valuable for studying this um, because you can kind of detect. You're like, well, why was I thinking of that just now? And maybe even <laughs> no, write it down. And yeah. when you do that, boom, you you start. Being able to 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 work up a data set of precognition in your life and and sort of map out how it how it works, but you know you're so you're having these trains of thought and you're you know why did you look up when you did?
1: Because I'm always looking up.
2: Okay, I know. Always looking up. Yeah, no. She's a bird
1: watcher. (laughs) Yeah. No, I
2: know. I I I know, but you could just as
1: easily have been looking somewhere else.
2: How I'm doing when I'm out there on the trail? Like, are you okay? Because I'm sitting there looking up at the sky in the middle of the night
1: it's funny you should bring up that way though how you do that because i'm very much into the um the field of empathy and empathic people and things like that and it's not something that i talk about on the show very often or not i don't talk about it with in my personal life very often but i have a lot of people that have come into my circle and they're like yeah i think i can do this and i tell most people it's like well just start paying attention to what's going on like most of the time when this stuff happens people just take it with a grain of salt, and don't really give it too much of a pay, paying attention because they've got stuff going on in their lives. They got bills and kids, and you know just life in general. So when people come along and they start talking about this stuff, I'll be like, "Well, just really start paying attention to what's going on." Like when you get an empathic thing that comes to, pay attention to what it is. Pay attention: is there a pattern to it? Is there a pattern to what's happening? Yeah. Go ahead. Most people are not
4: introspective. Yeah. Um, and uh, and you know people talk about how how dreams how how readily dreams fade from memory but i don't think it's i don't think it's dreams it's just thoughts
1: yeah your waking thoughts are
4: as evanescent as dreams if you're not used to paying attention to your thought stream okay you're you know what were you thinking five minutes ago uh well like unless it's in the context of a conversation where you can sort of reconstruct it you know it's gone what you were thinking um uh and uh there's a very interesting uh, and I talk about this, I think, briefly in the new book. There's a uh, a method that's used in a field called ecological psychology, and it's called experience sampling. And what they do is they give uh, they give participants in these experiments they give them a pager, okay, and uh, they will be page these people at random times, um, you know, a couple times a day maybe or whatever, and and when they're paged there the the person is then supposed to write down what they were thinking and how they were feeling at that moment, okay? And it's very enlightening for most people because most people really are not aware of their inner life, you know? I mean, it takes us, you know, a certain kind of person who's who's sort of naturally introspective uh, to be aware of their inner life. And people will be very surprised at what these records show. like like a de- like depressed people will find that actually, if you sample their thoughts, most of their thoughts are positive, but they think that they're, they're, they're always having these negative thoughts or vice versa, you know, things like that. Um, uh, so yeah, most people are not naturally good at introspecting. So, so building up that, that, uh, that skill, that muscle of, of attention, um, is, is really important, you know, for any, you know any psychic ability i think um uh and especially especially
1: god i hear the term psychic and it just makes me cringe though
4: (laughs) well but i'm using it as a generic term i don't i don't like the term either but uh, i'm just trying not to be yeah i
1: get it i get it i know biased towards a a particular
4: you know modality but if you want to study you want to study your precognition you you need to develop that muscle of introspection and that's where meditation comes in i mean it's uh uh just developing that ability to track your own thoughts uh, is really really valuable for a lot of things. I mean, not not just for for studying paranormal phenomena and precognition and stuff, but uh, it's just you know really 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 valuable.
1: Well, uh, go ahead, Stephanie. Any more?
2: Oh no, I was just going to say yeah uh, for uh, meditation. Um, just to to know yourself is really important, and any type of um, I'd heard that of that that uh, echo lot. Ecological uh, psychology technique before. And I think it is really fascinating. Um, And the whole idea is, uh, you know, to just. Like you're saying, use uh, the tools of recording or a diary or taking screenshots or whatever to check in with yourself and um, what's actually going on in, around you and in your uh, consciousness. Yeah. Um, and I was going to yeah. yeah.
4: add something though that you don't need to like have a pager or whatever. I mean, just, just having that mindset of like just pausing now and then to go, okay, what was I just thinking? Like, yep. you know, and, and I find that that uh it's a wonderful kind of divinatory tool or or uh, you know sort of the way you know people might cast the yijing or something like that you can just you know if you have if you are puzzled or find that you're at a crossroads just pause and think well what was i thinking about just like five seconds ago mm-hmm.
2: that what are you noticing thought, in your in your you environment
4: just five seconds ago that what? thought or that that what 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 you were thinking about or what you were preoccupied with just before you became conscious of your thinking often contains the answer, (laughs) you know. Uh, So. So, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's very valuable.
1: So this is the part of the show where I give the guests like the opportunity to promote anything they've got out or anything they got coming out. um, All of those things where people can find you on the Internet, all of that stuff. So I hand the floor to you to be able to go ahead and pimp yourself out there if you would like to. (laughs)
4: <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, I, uh, yeah, my first book, Time Loops, uh, if you're interested in all these topics, uh, it's a deep dive, um, it's a, it's a dense book, uh, but it really go it goes into the evidence for, uh, for precognition, uh, in, in part one, it, then it goes into the physics, uh, the possible physics and biology, uh, that allows it to occur, and then the second half of the book uh, is is uh, gets into um, into uh, into the unconscious and how precognition operates on an unconscious level. Uh, so I've got a few chapters in there on on Freud. If you are coming to this thinking, oh well, wasn't Freud debunked, and you know, isn't he you know a uh, uh, you know a dead old white man that we should ignore? Uh, you are you, you will. Be surprised. I mean, he was a, a a fascinating and very important figure, and he was a a major precog. Um, he had all kinds of precognitive experiences, which he misinterpreted, um, and you could say it's almost his tragic flaw. And it's like it, it, he's so fascinating from this uh, standpoint. And then the last part of the book uh, goes into uh, uh, precognition in the lives of 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 uh, a few important. Um, uh, individuals such as Philip K. Dick um, and the woman. Uh, I, I think my, my favorite chapter of the book is the is the chapter on on Carl Jung and his patient who, who had the dream about the scarab beetle. Uh, this is like everybody's favorite passage in Carl Jung's writing, and nobody knows uh, anything about the real person uh, in his office who had a dream about a, a scarab. Well, in fact, we now know who this person was, and it turns out she had precognitive dreams and precognitive symptoms um, uh, throughout her therapy with 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 Jung. And uh, so I've got a, a chapter on her. Um, but I've got a new book coming out that focuses on the dream stuff. Um, it, it's called Precognitive Dreamwork and the Long Self. And that's coming out from Inner Traditions Publisher uh, uh, late next month. So a little over... Uh, so about five weeks from now, it'll be out, and it's now available on for pre-order on on you know whatever internet site you want to buy books from. Uh, so, uh, and it focuses on on dreams and and um, how to interpret dreams and how to do precognitive dream work, and it's sort of an invitation uh, to people to be citizen scientists about this. Cool. So those are the those are the main things. I also have a, a blog called the Nightshirt where I write about these kinds of themes.
1: Well, thank you for coming on here and talking to us. Um, hopefully we didn't take you down the same roads that you go down all the time. Um,
4: <laughs> <laughs> no, this was nice.
1: I, I do want to talk to you again at some point, though, to hear more of your pers- you know, personal stories of weirdness and stories that you've heard from other people at some point, though, because we really didn't get a whole bunch of uh, to t- you know, time to talk about a lot of that stuff, and I have a feeling that there's more under the surface there. Yeah. So you know, um, I think down the road, we might be bugging you to come back at some point if possible.
4: <laughs> Absolutely. I would love to. This has, been, this has been a lot of fun.
2: Thank you very much. No, no thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. And I just have been, uh, just love your work over the years and just, uh, yeah, thank
4: you. Well, it's nice to finally uh, talk to you in person, Steph, because we've been like sort of uh, exchanging, you know, emails and Tweets <laughs> over the course of a few years. And
3: uh, no,
4: it's fun. It's nice, like to, nice to finally yeah. meet you. <laughs> yeah. Cute.
1: She was like, I might be able to get Eric on the show. And I'm like, Really? He'll come on our show? He'll talk about this stuff? Seriously? I'm like, If you can get him on the show, yeah, we'll do this. We'll make this happen. So, you know, I was, when she said, Yeah, you're coming on the show, I was like, Whoa, okay, cool. Now, I, this is going to be sweet. So, yeah, thank you for coming on and talk about this stuff. It's been a lot of fun. It's been very interesting. And it's nice to talk from it. Um, I don't know how to put it like in a standpoint of, of not going off to like, into like vibrations and increasing your, mm-hmm. you know, increasing your spirituality and all that kind of gobbledygook, just talking about it in a real practical sense and, and format. Mm-hmm. So uh, thank you for coming on here and doing this, man. I really appreciate it. Sure. It's been, a, it's been a pleasure. Bridgen. Take a walk on the dark side.
0: When the stones arrived at chess studios, they saw muddy waters for the first time. The blues guitarist was dressed in white overalls on top of a stepladder painting. Someone said, well, meet muddy waters and we're all toppling over ourselves, bewildered, thinking, what's this? Is this a hobby of his? Take a walk on the dark side, rocking old myths, legends and curses on Audible and iTunes. We
4: all have questions. What
0: happens after we die? Wow. Big is Bigfoot's government hiding aliens from us? We all have stories. we grew up in a haunted house. The UFO went right over the we'll mountain. Cross right in front of my Join experienced paranormal investigators, J.P. Doyle.
4: They need to make this where there's a hole on the top for your penis. John Gonzalez. It's the same, same, but my ass is brown. And Roman Avia. Got <laughs> some underage pictures of me.
3: <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> While we talk all things paranormal with just a pinch of humor. Find our show. Be Just Paranormal Podcasts on all major podcast outlets, and be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on all of our latest
0: episodes.
1: So, Eric Wargo, that was an interesting show. I mean, normally that stuff gets a little bit... Again, it's all about like the vibrations and raising your consciousness, and... All of that really derpy new age kind of stuff, which is weird because I also study magic and things like that. You'd figure, you know, figure I'd be along those lines, but I'm not. And I really wasn't sure entirely what this show had in store for us. And again, you send me a telephone book of notes and I'm looking at that going, man, fuck this shit. I ain't got to read all that. That's that's too much like work. I know I'm a bad prep for the the guests on the show, but... I always go back no. to I don't really need to cuz Stephanie already knows all this stuff. So
2: <laughs> well, uh, you've been doing this show for how long? And so you have a, you know, and years. you have a real wide range of guests. So you have a lot of familiarity just from having done this show for so long. You always end up asking really great, really interesting questions. So Well, the oh, thing so. is it's
1: like It's like I put up on Facebook when I was doing the show prep for this show. This show has always ran off of chaos. There's never been a set formula for how we've ever done things. Like there's never been a set format. There's never been a set type of guest. So when people say, what kind of show do you have? I go, yeah. And they're like, well, is it a paranormal show? Sometimes. Sometimes it's true crime. Sometimes, and I haven't done it for a while, but just sometimes it's just stupid news stories. Uh, Mm -hmm. sometimes it's interviews, sometimes it's discussions and then the topics of those discussions and those interviews often change too. So we don't follow a set course, but it's always tending to be weird. So when you brought this to me and said, yeah, you know, would you be interested in talking about this? I said, I don't know, but you're putting the work into it and you're putting the time into finding the person and, and you're familiar with them. And it's definitely an interesting, strange topic. So let's just fly with it and see what happens. And I really wasn't planning on talking that much this episode. I plan on just sitting back and keeping my mouth shut, but I was pretty surprised. I was like, well, this is triggering this question and this idea and so forth, you know. So, you know, it turned out to be a lot different than I thought it was going to be, as is usually the case when you come on the show.
2: Well, no, I was glad because you kept saying, well, I'm just going to sit back. And I was thinking, gosh, because, you know, I mean, Eric Wargo is you know, a real interesting guy. He's been really. Been putting a lot of uh, work and thought and research into all this for a number of years so I was thinking you know don't hold back because you know we got this uh, amazing person uh, you know in, uh, well, I in our to clutches and so
1: you could <laughs> where he <laughs> take was it, going then. and what his actual because I didn't read his book I, that's why I told him before the show I'm like I haven't read your book yet um mm-hmm. But, again, I wasn't worried about it because you were here. Because my biggest thing is like, okay, well, what happens when we have nothing to talk about? Where is this going to go? Because usually I'm the guy that plays goalie or whatever and kind of knocks the yeah, thing yeah, out yeah. there again. Mm-hmm. So I kind of wanted to feel out where he was coming from and where he was going. Usually when I have someone on the show that has a Ph.D. or something like that, my buddy uh, Tyler Coke John taught me a long time ago. Whenever somebody's on the show, find out if they have a dog in this fight. Find out where they're coming from. Find out if what they're talking about affects what they do in their research and stuff like that. And Mm -hmm. before we got on the air, we kind of had that conversation about what he does and, you know, what he does in his real life. And Mm -hmm. I was like, well, I guess that's kind of pointless for me to ask the question on the air at that point, even though I probably should have just to give the audience that perspective. But so it's a matter of whenever I get somebody on here, feeling out, like, where is their headspace in this? Where where are they going with this and how how are they? what is their approach that they're approaching this from? So, you know, the idea of how he's working with precognition and dreams and things like that, it's a very, um, the way he's approaching it is very different. Um, and I could tell he's like a fan of Valet and all these kinds of things, uh, mm-hmm. just from the, from the way he asks about these questions and so forth, because at no time did he ever go into the whole spiritual vibrations um, you know, he didn't go into any of that stuff really. I don't think well, he did
2: the at thing all. is, is that yeah, the thing is, is that he has an academic background and a scientific discipline, yeah, that's right? right? I guess
1: that's what I'm going to say. He's very, he was very academic about how he talks about this. Stuff.
2: As well, he has uh, been a, a Zen uh, meditation practitioner for years. As well, he has been recording his dreams for years, so he's used to having these uh, kind of amorphous uh, meaning-based experiences. But that there's this idea that only science is is disciplined, but there are disciplines and models and theories and procedures and best practices in the humanities as well right Mm -hmm. and so you can bring those type of uh uh procedures um methods to bear on these type of subjects and that's what he's been doing and that's what i like when he talked about um uh, citizen scientists right uh citizen researchers this has been something that has been a I'm going to get a gross, a bug that has been straight up my ass for over a decade now because, I, as I said, I am a bird watcher. Um, I do appreciate amateur astronomers. And there are huge advances made to this day, uh, major advances in both of those scientific disciplines of uh, ornithology as well as astronomy by uh, amateurs. Well, yeah, a couple of kids
1: what, last week or the week before discovered three new exoplanets or something like that. Yeah. I don't remember exactly how it went down. But I love when that happens because it's like, you know, the everyman still has, mm-hmm. you know, with a minimal scientific knowledge and equipment still has the ability to affect what's actually going on, you know, with these fields of science and so forth.
2: And bird watching is an excellent example, too, because you have, you know, a bird counts. They, they have been hugely important in terms of knowing what is going on with um, our landscape, our country, uh, ecologically over the last century and it's just you just have people going in on certain days they will go out and count the birds of particular species that they see in their yard or in a particular geographic area
1: yeah, so you have carrying this,
2: blue yellow or a stick exactly that's an yeah, inside yeah. joke
1: never mind no <laughs> one's gonna get that joke
2: <laughs> but, but I, then you have like these snapshots in time at the same place the same location you know every year for you know decades and decades and stuff and so you can see what's happening with these populations. It does not take much in the way of equipment at all. You know, you just need like a piece of paper or like an app on your phone, maybe binoculars and a, and a field guide. It's not. It's very low tech, but um, you can still get really incredible, important uh, contributions to the field that you can do a lot with, just with these very kind of minimal things. And I like that he is, Wargo is taking the same type of approach um, the problem he, I feel did, he's yeah.
1: going to run into though and I get a little worried about is from the skeptical community where yeah. and not all skeptics do this but you have skeptics and then you have scofftics and the the popular term that gets thrown around is pseudoscience yeah. um and there there is a lot of like this is this is my problem and I acknowledge this I I very much I'm one of those people that unless something happens to me Like Mm -hmm. I have a hard time dealing with this. Me and a mutual friend of ours, we get into conversations all the time about Bigfoot and Dogman and stuff. And I'm like, I'm not a Bigfoot person, but Mm -hmm. I imagine that will change immediately if a Bigfoot should happen to go strong by me, or I should see a Dogman or something like that. Mm
2: -hmm. Then
1: you know, I may you know that I will change my mind on that. But that's not necessarily true too, because I've had a lot of, and you've you've encountered this with me where I've had a lot of strange things happen to me, and I still have this. Um, nature to not want to accept what has happened or what I'm experiencing or so forth, because sometimes it's just hard for me to wrap my brain around. So do you have this happening in the skeptical community a lot where people are like, well, I don't understand this. It doesn't make any sense. Therefore it's pseudoscience. And it's just somebody like Eric, you know, I get the sense from him that he's, he acknowledges, yeah, I'm poking at this. I don't totally understand what's going on here. These are my theories. These are my ideas you know, see, here's what I found, see what you can do with this. That's the yeah. kind of feeling that I get from him when he talks about this kind of stuff. So I was very, like, trying to watch the questions that I asked and things like that, because, like, if it had been somebody that along the, up, up, this is how things are, you know, this is how this works, I probably would have been a little bit more, I don't want to say standoffish, but I would have been a little bit more aggressive about my questioning. But again, he just comes across as somebody that's like, hey, this this is what I'm, this is what it looks like to me what do you get out of this? What do you, what do you think this is? You know? Yeah. He's, he's
2: talking, he's, he's, he's acting in good faith and he's being transparent and he ends up explaining a lot of stuff because he, um, he wants to lay out his thought process to be transparent. You know? Yeah. He's, he's not like trying to, I mean, he has his, his theories and his hypotheses, um, but he's not like trying to shove it down people's throats. He's trying to lay out a basis, a framework, so then you can kind exactly. of push and pull at it and work within that framework yeah. and see. It's it kind of like an open up. source theory. <laughs> exactly. No, exactly. It's an yeah. open source no, theory. You know, good way of putting it. I like so. that.
1: Um, and that was one of like one of the things that I responded to immediately. Is, that's one of the things I don't like to talk about consciousness on this show. Consciousness mm-hmm. has never been something that I found myself gravitating sp- towards because we don't. <laughs> I'm so <mess> sorry.
2: What's <laughs> that? So consciousness is never something I found myself gravitating towards. Well, the, the, it the conversation like just like passed out all the time. <laughs> you <yeah>, know
1: kidding. <laughs> I want to stay asleep, but no, like uh, the the whole concept of what consciousness actually is, because we really can't define what consciousness actually really is in any real state or frame. We haven't. We have to. You have to come down and narrow down what consciousness is, and it kind of goes back to a little bit of what Eric was saying, was where like we don't understand what a lot of this stuff is. And that was when I was like, oh, okay. So, you know, when he says something like, yeah, we don't know what consciousness is. And he agrees with that concept. I'm like, all right, now I can start to wrap my head around this a little bit more because you're coming at it from an open ended spectrum. Um, It's like when people, oh yeah, we're, we're altering our consciousness. We're doing this, we're doing that. And I'm like, you can't really have this conversation because we don't know what this is. It's like so much of the paranormal. We don't know what some of this is. Everybody comes at it from their own angle you know, you got the Bigfoot hunters, this is a flesh and blood creature. The UFO people, well, this is a nuts and bolts thing. Well, no, this is something that's affecting our consciousness. Um, the ghost hunting people, you know, all of these people come at these things from their own directions. And then you've got the people like us that are kind of in the middle of all of this. Um, and me and Ash have had this discussion many times. It's like, mm-hmm. well, wait a minute. Well, hold on, hold on. Let let's Let's take a look at this picture as a whole. Let's see... You know, it's like the four blind men coming up to an elephant and each one grabs a different part of the elephant and tries to describe what it is that one person grabs a leg, one person grabs a trunk, one person grabs an ear, and they're trying to describe what this thing is when nobody can really see what the whole spectrum of this is. So that's the feeling that I get when Eric talks about these time loops and this this pre-causality and this precognition and these kinds of things. Yeah, it rambled
2: on there. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, the whole thing of just you know when you are really trying to trying to kind of get a toe in the door into this very vast amorphous topic mm-hmm. and figure okay what are some things that we kind of try and nail down and try and systematize a little bit to try and get some ideas get some about fun-holes. where we are. Yeah. You know. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So he was fun to talk to you. The only thing I was bummed about is that we were talking before the show, and even at the beginning of the show, we were just like, well, let's just talk about weird shit. And we really didn't get into a whole lot of the experiences and things like that. And that's kind of like if we have him on here again, I just kind of want to be like, okay, well, tell me about your experiences. Tell me about certain things that have happened to you that you are comfortable talking about, you know, and how yeah. how did these things lead you to get to where you are now?
2: Yeah, yeah we, I, I uh, actually tried to uh, – psychically influence uh, one of his blog posts. We could have gotten into that.
1: You tried to um, nudge
2: him. How about that? Uh, yeah. Well, that, Look at <laughs> you. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs>
1: and my moths that, li- my, my mos- that are listening right now will understand what I'm saying. Listening. Oh, my God. Yeah, I'm, I'm done. I've, I'm starting to get tongue-tied.
2: So, well, it was a weird thing because it ended up uh, – well, I was thinking of this just recently, but the whole uh, shooting stars and that, that song, uh, Then She Appeared, because – I I ended up I was trying to get the idea of a pomegranate across in one of his blog posts. So he ended up having a uh, the uh, a couple of the images were very pomegranty looking on the blog post. But the weird thing was he ended up having a quote from the the guy that wrestles with the angel and his hip goes out of joint and. When I was trying to have this uh, to nudge him, I ended up having a, a vision where, like my my knees were we were sitting across from one another. it sounds so gross, and my knees were kind of holding his knees, so sort of like our thigh bones were touching, right? And then he had this whole thing about this guy's hip hip joint going out of joint, which is weird because that's my whole problem with my my lameness that I have. Um. <laughs> I'm sorry. Lameness. I
1: know it's just a strange
2: term to use. You're so lame. Because <laughs> I, I, I am literally lame. Yeah, I know. Um, and uh, which is my my pelvis moves around on on the spine. It's the, my the, the joint in my hip goes out of joint So that just really blew me away. Um. So then later on, within a few months of that, I ended up going to Italy with my husband, and I went to the Uffizi. I was one of the things he kept saying, what do you want to do at Florence? And I knew I'd have a problem getting around physically. And I kept saying, I want to go to the offici. I want to see the Botticellis. I want to see the primavera. I want to see the birth of Venus. I want to go. And he was just like, what? I'm just like, that's all I want to do. And it turns out that was about all I was able to do. But I was standing in front of the birth of Venus. My husband came up behind me and he started singing that song. Then she appeared. Now, Venus is looking at a couple of other Botticelli's, and it's these two Madonnas with child, and both of them are holding pomegranates. And I remember I had written, Eric, and I said, you remember the pomegranate thing? Because I was just, you know, in Florence, and it, which I completely f- had forgotten about. I mentioned the Uffizi when I was, like, 18. Um, it, so it's like this weird kind of coming back around again to this whole pomegranate thing that I had been in, trying to influence him before. Anyway, I don't know what any of this means or whatever, but it's strange, <laughs> and it's weird when you keep – like he was saying, if you keep these notes, you keep these records about things where you can go back and say, yeah, that really did – that was it, that was actually a thing. I don't know what it means. but Yeah,
1: but largely that's what I wanted to say to him though also. It's like, great. We get all this information put to, until it all actually happens. It's ultimately all useless. You know, It's like – because you don't know – you don't know the information was pertinent until the event actually happens for you to go, oh, that's what that means. It's kind of like the whole Mothman prophecy thing where mm-hmm. you're getting all this information but you don't know what it means or where it's going to go or what's going to happen with it until it's done. And you're like, wow, that was really useful. Thanks. I wish I would have known that a week ago or something like that,
2: you know. Yeah. it's. Um, but That's why he was talking about right. how
1: our subconscious brain has to process it because that's the only way it can process this information coming through.
2: Yeah, I. It was weird because I had one. Anyway, I won't bring that up right now. But yeah, it's it's <laughs> it gets you of that feeling of being a, like Oedipus where you're trying to avoid these shitty outcomes, but then that it it just life unfolds as it unfolds. So I don't know. All right. Well, let's
1: wrap this up. And, uh, you know, thanks again for doing this. It's anytime you come up and say, hey, I've got a show idea. And I say, find a date, find the guest. Let's make it happen. At this point now, it's just kind of like, all right, what do you want to do? Let's go. I'll hit record and we'll just see what it takes us. So thank you again for doing this. It's always a joy and a pleasure having you on here to talk about strange stuff. Um, oh, no, it's
2: it, absolutely – it's just – I'm so thankful and I really appreciate you do, doing all the, the tentacle stuff and all the work and just you know asking great questions and well, always – an it's a work. lot of fun too. Sitting back yeah. and
1: twiddling knobs and making things sound good is fine. It's, it's the part of going out, finding a guest, reading the book, doing the research, and then hopefully the guest comes on the show and then doing the interview. <laughs> and then when you're done with the interview, having to go and do all the other stuff. At least this, I get to take half of it off and I can just sit back and drink beer and turn knobs and dials and make things sound better. <laughs> So, again, yes, you are doing a lot of my work for me. But, hey, you know, I give you credit. So, yeah, whatever. Oh, gosh. So, anyways, let's wrap this up. Um, this is Rogan. Peace from Detroit. Stuff. You can close it out however you want.
2: This is Steph. Um, everyone, uh, have a, a s- nice sleep and uh, sweet dreams. Peace. Peace. <laughs> Bye-bye.